Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 254 and part two of my conversation with percussionist, composer, educator, visual artist, and advocate, Julie Spencer. But first up, fall 2021. Yes, summer is officially over. Why do I say this? Because this past afternoon, we just had our first band meeting of the new semester, even though the new semester doesn't technically start until August 23rd. But the meetings have begun, the students are starting to arrive, and it's really happening. When I talk to you all next week, I will be in band camp mode, but here's hoping for a successful season all the way through in whatever form that may take. Okay, now let's return to our conversation with Julie Spencer. Hopefully you heard part one last week with Julie, where we got a tour throughout her entire career, catching up a lot on her compositional, performing, and teaching output, along with getting to know her life in Europe. On part two this week, we get to the random ask questions portion of our show, which went on as a longer section and seemed to work on my end as a standalone episode. So here, we'll get to Julie discussing her passion for social causes, her experiences as a woman in her various disciplines, the importance of learning about culture through food, her favorite books, the game of tennis, and all of the things that impact her artistic life. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on July 25th, 2021, and it begins right now. All right, I have a final segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. First couple are not random, but what is, the first question is, what is an area within, you could kind of take this in, you know, like in the composition world, you could take this in the performing world. but what is something in those worlds that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? You mean something I don't like? Yes. Oh, that's easy. I don't like when art is a business that people feel that they have to constantly compare themselves to each other. I don't like grades in school. I don't like comparing degrees. I don't like comparing prestige of schools where people teach or where people have come from. I don't like comparing awards or the amount of awards that somebody has or stipends or grants. I don't like people feeling smaller than they actually are because they feel like in somebody else's measuring book, maybe they don't measure up. And it really bothers me to see people suffer from a feeling that who they are as a person and their merit and their value as a shining, beautiful soul in the universe is lessened to any degree because of something that they do that they feel hasn't been good enough or that they're afraid someone else would think hasn't been good enough. That bothers me. And it bothers me in the profession of the arts, in the entertainment industry and in the arts and in academia for the arts, that that is still a reality that so many of us face in so many ways. Um, And that we're not at a place where 
artists are are spared from that, but I suppose that's just the reality of modern life. It makes me mad when I see beautiful people suffering uh, because of self-doubt. And that is very often, um, very often girls and women uh, because of the um, misogyny and sexism that still exists in the percussion world, in the composition world, in jazz, certainly in many of the music traditions that have studied as well. Um, not from my teachers, but uh, in the cultures. That makes me very mad to see that uh, people are not accepted for who they are uh, because of their gender or because of their um, something about them that puts them in a demographic that is traditionally undervalued. That makes me angry. And racism makes me very, very angry because there are still too many people who who are living off of the privileges of their ethnicity and their, their position in the cultural hierarchy of various countries um, that are still thinking that people, women and black and brown and indigenous people can't possibly be as good because the racism is so deep and so ingrained and the sexism is so deep and so ingrained uh, that they just can't imagine that they themselves would be sexist or racist. And that makes me more angry than anything. And if you, it sounds like it fuels a lot of your own writing too. It absolutely does. And I think, and I, I would bet that, that, that you, there are artists who that's where they get connected to you, right? I would hope so. Yeah. On my YouTube channel, I have a, I have an acronym for music that I write that is um, anti-racist music. It's called ARM, anti-racist music, A-R-M. I did a lot of interviews um, of colleagues and friends and people that I was very fortunate enough to meet and talk about. Uh, it was a year ago. And then I realized there's still a lot of stuff that I have to learn and a lot of privilege that I've grown up with that I didn't realize that I had. And before I could um, publish this article, either on the PAS blog or the Progressive Notes, I don't know which, uh, I need to take some time to uh, reevaluate my perspectives and dig a little bit deeper to find out how I myself need to be uh, considering the kinds of systemic racism that influence me that I'm not even aware of before I can put myself in a position to even think that I could publish that article. So I'll just use this as an opportunity to say to anybody that I interviewed uh, who know that I'm writing this article, uh, thank you for your patience in this um, because uh, I wanna get it right. I want to uh, hold up the voices and the experiences and the lives of these amazing people that I've been able to talk to and have as little of me in the article as possible. And I think one of the hardest things about realizing after the Me Too movement and after the Black Lives Matter movement really have taken hold in American culture anyway, one of the hardest things to realize um, for men and for um, privileged people in America, uh, white people who don't understand that systemic racism is a huge part 
a huge part of American history and American life today and the way that people suffer because of this. Um, it's really important to just step back and uh, be open to that. And I think, um, I think the Percussive Arts Society is doing a pretty darn good job in uh, starting conversations. I feel happy that maybe I can do something that will encourage that even more. And this has been a, a year of a lot of change and a lot of insight that I'm still in the middle of, of how to, um, how to be a voice for things and still realize that I've got so much to learn. So it's another thing that I wanted to talk about that um, is important to me right now is being able to um, not only be a voice for love in a general way as an artist, but in a very specific way uh, in these climates and coming out with my own stories in the Me Too movement um, publicly has been very helpful to me to be able to speak more openly and more directly uh, as a feminist. And uh, I just feel like there's so much to do. And most of it is just about, like you said, and have come back to several times in our conversation, being open to change, being open to new things and being open to realize that there's, uh, there's something else to see than what we've already seen or what we think we already know. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a common theme in my life. Yeah. And it sounds like it's also the openness of, of knowing that the work always continues. There's no, you, you don't reach a point where you figured it all out. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who may think it, but that's the. <laughs> nah, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard to imagine, but I suppose you're right. I mean, of course there are, but yeah. in the arts, there are less people like that. I would like to think. I, yes, I would like to think as well. <laughs> um, but you know it's it's interesting because i've the you know the next question you kind of went into a lot of where I, I typically go for my next question which is about the question typically is being a woman in a mostly male percussion world but it's interesting because your your point of view is is in percussion composition jazz all three of those <laughs> you're you're very much the minority in like you know so it's like you could you could answer you could go in like you you have lots of frames of reference i'll just put it that way yes i'm i'm nodding slowly <laughs> with a meaningful look on my face absolutely yes. yeah yeah i mean what can i say i um I feel like it's time for us all to just grow up. We need to grow up and uh, take a stand for things that we think uh, are right. And I didn't always understand that. I wasn't always as aware of the difficulty of being a woman in percussion. In composition and jazz, as each of these things went further because I was just so busy trying to work past it. I mean, I was 15 and I became the section leader of the percussion section in my high school. And that didn't make everybody happy if you, you know, can imagine what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. And so in my yearbook, when I go back and I read the yearbook, years later, the guy who was the section leader 
and who was, you know, captain of the tennis team. And he was the math teacher's son. And, you know, he was a really cool dude. And he had started a band with me. You know, this lonely freshman. It was amazing. He was such a cool guy. And, um, and he said, don't worry about so-and-so. You can take care of him. And it was like, he was leaving, he was graduating and he realized he was leaving me in the position that I was gonna be the new section leader at 15 mm-hmm. of all these big, you know, upperclassmen guys yeah. who were really, really sexist. Yeah. Not all of them, right. but, but it, was, it was pretty tricky navigating those waters. And so I always, from the beginning, I had to think of myself, not in terms of, I had to think of every situation not gendered because I couldn't get through it otherwise. And so that hampered me. Actually, I was invited to be on a, on a panel discussing feminism and percussion, I don't know, like 35 years ago. Mm. And I declined because at that point, I still, I couldn't bring myself to think about it because it was just too hard. Mm. And as I got a little bit older, I started realizing I can't keep my eyes closed. I need to be able to talk about stuff. And that means I have to face the difficulty. And, and for me, part of that was my experiences that I, that I came out about in the Me Too movement and other things that I'll be uh, writing about in the future as well. Um, there are a lot of reasons why it's hard to talk about things. Ask a follow-up on, on something, which is the, that panel you were talking about from 35 years ago, you felt like, did you feel like you weren't sure what you could contribute or that? Yes. You okay. Yes. And at that time, I just didn't see myself as a minority. I didn't, I didn't want to see myself as a person who had to fight twice as hard to get anything. I, I didn't want to think of myself like that because when I thought of myself that way, it just made it even harder. And I was so focused on trying to put that out of my mind. You know, um, Josh Jones, mm-hmm. a tympanist in Kansas, he said in the first um, in the first panel that the diversity committee had of PIS, he said, you know, he had to work ten times harder, and he had to work ten times harder to to to, to just put it out of his mind and to and to to do the thing that he wanted to do. And man, I just started crying during that, you know, watching that panel because I felt like. That's what I had to do. I know a little bit what he was talking about. And, um, and I feel like um, being in touch with things that are hard in our life makes it easier, like I said earlier, to, be, to have more empathy when other people go through things that are hard in their lives. And it's also easier to identify um, the boundaries that we have to put up around ourselves just to keep sane and to get through things. Because if you deal with all of the reality of what makes something difficult at the same time, sometimes you can't find the strength to just do that thing that you're trying to do. Yeah, that's well said. I was at that panel too. I, I, know, I mean, I remember him, you know, he's not the only person who's, who's made that similar comment, but I, I can see but I can completely see the ways that that so many people would connect that, that weren't, that weren't young black artists either (laughs) that, that connected completely to that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. More questions. These are, these will get uh, considerably less serious. Um, 
But we can stay serious, if, you know, wherever <laughs> you want to go. Whatever you want, Pete. This okay. is your time and I'm having fun. Okay, good. First question is, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> an impression of me. Yep. That would probably have to be John Singer. He's always been very quick uh, to be able to satirize um, my sweet positivity. Uh, which sometimes just drives him over the edge because he's so <laughs> satirical. And I have to say that over the years, um, I've come come a little bit, uh, I've been able to laugh at myself a lot more because of John and of course having kids, when your own kids satirize you, you know, yeah. it's, just <laughs> it's the best. Um, but yeah, so satirizing me for, for, for just being too nice sometimes, you know? And some people have, have uh, you know, kind of kidded me a little bit that I, I used to not want to use swear words or stuff. Or, mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, I've definitely had my wild years. So I think I just met John after those years had ended. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's like I should have I should have mentioned that I do put an E rating on these so so the uh, you know swear away no no, worries, <laughs> no worries. Um, all right next question what's a what's a skill that you have that you're an all time great at but you but it doesn't really have any real useful function or you would never make a living out of it. Now, see, there we have to define terms. What is all-time great? Does that mean in my own mind? Sure, yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it can be that, completely. <laughs> I make a really nice curry. Oh, but, um, I learned cooking from um, our mentor, who was my husband's sitar teacher and my um, Indian, uh, Indian singing teacher and theory teacher. And when we got married, he gave us a bunch of cookbooks and then I mean, we would just cook together and stuff. So he he basically taught me how to cook. So I don't think I'm an awesome cook. I don't know, all time great, no. But I really like I really like putting together a nice meal. And of course, I mean, it's almost always improvised. <laughs> but I'm pretty lucky with improvisations with cooking. But I also oh, learned yeah. I also learned cooking from um, our other um, Indonesian teacher at the University of Michigan, he came for a year uh, teaching Javanese gamelan. His name was Yamto. He's uh, just another virtuosic man that I was lucky to uh, literally sit at his feet for a year and uh, have him teach us Javanese gamelan. And uh, he bought me, you know, the pestle, the stone thing, and taught mm -hmm. me how to, you know, do the whole, whole thing. So I don't know, I love cooking. And I like seeing people smile when they taste something they've never tasted before. I really, I get a kick out of that. I'm not really a foodie, but I mean, I, I would never post pictures of food. It's just not my thing. Sure. But um, I really enjoy having dinner parties, uh, mm. getting a bunch of people at the table and having conversations about a million things yeah. over a, a nice long meal, you know, a nice dessert, trying out new recipes. And sounds kind of, kind of dopey, but I mean... I really feel like good food makes people open up and relax. And then you can really have a great evening, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I enjoy that. Yeah. And good wine. 
also. We'll do that. Yeah, I, I had enough of that earlier <laughs> that I don't need that anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. Gotcha. But, uh, anybody who anybody who knew me at Eastman, for part of the time at CalArts, knows that uh, I had enough, and the rest of my life is just fine without. <laughs> You know, what it sounds like is that you're maybe one of your, your, and this makes sense with your improvisational and that all like kind of all the ways it relates to music, but it sounds like you might be an all time great at when you were leaving town for a bunch of days and you just go in the fridge and you're like, need to use that, 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 that. And you just like, you're like, we're just going to put it all together with like a nice sauce. And we're like, and now we've cleaned out the fridge, right? Leftovers are great, man. They're totally yeah. underrated. Yeah. My my thing now is um, making a soup because, you know, I'm trying to take off the COVID fat. So I'm doing pretty well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have a little ways to go to get to my next goal. But mm -hmm. so my thing is I start a nice soup and it starts mm -hmm. like a clear broth on the mm -hmm. first day of the week. Yeah. And then the next day I add one ingredient and I'm, I'm not all vegetarian now, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to being all vegetarian now, which I'm really happy about. And um, thanks to, um, well, anyway. So so then you add, so the point is the soup stays good all week because it doesn't have meat in it. It doesn't have any meat products. And I really love changing recipes. Uh, so, you know, a good pot of soup can go for five days and it's a different soup every day if you're creative. And uh, I like that. I like things changing color and yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, and I would say, I think, I think if you making a good curry is a really good skill, actually, just having Boy, that in the bag. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about sauteing the onions and the garlic. That, that's really where everything starts. If you saute the onions and the garlic, you can't go wrong. It's like a joke with my kids. They say, Mom, what's in this? And I say, well, I saute the onions and the garlic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is okay. so true. We, it is. We uh we've been doing for the last number of years like the blue apron like I, I don't know if they have that in Germany but it's like the well it's like you know they it's the meal prep things where they send you the ingredients and then they give you the recipe oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so the thing one of the thing among among things like uh, olive oil vegetables you know like let it you know saute and everything is season the taste with salt and pepper and just like keep throwing that in there to kind of. Uh, and I was like, oh, you, you, and it, like literally every recipe, it's, it's like step three, season the taste with salt and pepper. Step five, season the taste with salt and pepper. I'm like, <laughs> okay. All right. So, well, some of my, my, my favorite recipes are from my girlfriend from China when we were in Michigan. And she said, um, she said, um, this is folk food. This is something you never get in a restaurant, but this is what everybody in China eats. And I just, I love that recipe. It's with crunchy potatoes and carrots and onions and a wok and just stuff like that. So there were, there are some recipes that I got from each of my cooking teachers that, uh, that are kind of like, I mean, our kids were just insane, you know, from the time they could eat food, they were eating <laughs> all of this, all of this um, food that I didn't eat until, you know, I was, you know, going off to New York or going off to California or whatever. So it's fun. I mean, trying different kinds of foods and learning how to cook different kinds of foods. It's a way of experiencing the world in a new way. And that's, that's really, really important because you, you can't really understand 
how a person from another culture feels until right. you've eaten the food. I mean, that's like the tiny first beginning. And I remember um, Johnny Lee Lane telling me about his mom's sweet potato pie, you know? And so it made me want to learn how to cook things with sweet potatoes. And my mom cooked with sweet potatoes. And, and I don't know how to explain it, but there's just something really special about meeting people, having your teachers teach you also how to cook. It's, it was a big part of me feeling like, well, it was a big part of the immersion of all of the music that I studied. You know, our, um, Alfred Letzetko came over for Thanksgiving one year in, in LA, uh, my Ghanaian teacher. And uh, he told me I was the first woman that he ever taught a chimabu, you know, the lead drum. And he'd been teaching at Cal Arts for a long time. And I really felt the honor of that, that I was the first woman that he said, he had decided he was gonna teach me the chimabu. So anyway, he came over for Thanksgiving and, and that Thanksgiving we had um, peanut butter turkey because in Ghana, that's a thing. You mix peanuts and turkey in this, you know, this sauce. And um, I don't know, I always felt like I understood him a little bit better after he cooked dinner for us, you know? And that's another thing that's in my, in my repertoire. <laughs> that sounds really good. I've never had that. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. It's really awesome. It's like the food from Morocco, these tangine, you know, and this mm-hmm. so what, like what we would call a casserole. Um, and the first time that I had that, you know, it's apricots and meat. Mm-hmm. And I had never had, I mean, but I mean, for, for us for Thanksgiving, you know, we have cranberries and turkey and stuff. Right. So it's not like fruit and meat is such a weird thing. It's just every culture has its own combination of different kinds of fruit and, and meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Next question kind of related is where is some, because you've been and have lived in so many places, where is somewhere that you have not been to that you still really want to get to? Wow. That's a really hard question. I mean, I would really like to see the Arctic circle Mm. before we lose all the glaciers and before we lose the polar bears. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but, um, Certainly in pandemic times, getting on a big cruise ship is not something, I mean, I can't afford it anyway, but I mean, I would just really like to see glaciers before we lose them. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, obviously to visit the places, you know, with some of my teachers um, in their countries, obviously, but um, I mean, there are so many places I wouldn't know where to start, man. I mean, sure. like, yeah, I'd like to go to Havana and study, you know, Cuban drumming, you know, when Aldo Matza takes Cosa there, you know, for one of his things. I'd love to go to Brazil and stay with some of our friends in, um, you know, in Bahia and, you know, get into the samba there. I would love to, you know, it's usually about music, you know, the, the yeah. music that I'd like to do. I'd love to go to Indonesia and visit some of our former teachers, you know, and, and obviously, you know, Ghana. But, um, I mean, just as a place, apart from any music or apart from any intellectual or academic or, or personal connection, I, I would like to see the glaciers and the polar bears before they're gone. Yeah. Same. All right. What is, just change of pace, what is a favorite book? Favorite book? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't really deal very much with favorites, so I'll just give a list. Um, Anything by Simone de Beauvoir. Mm -hmm. Um, Any poem by Emily Dickinson. 
Um, any book by Malcolm Gladwell, although I tend to still consider Outliers my favorite. I think that might be my favorite also. Yep. Yeah. Um, it just, it's the broadest. It's the broadest and it's the most about what he's about. And everything else is a little bit more specific, you know? But that yeah. one is just like everything and the kitchen sink. Yeah. Um, it feels like, uh, it's. I mean, it's also, I was just sitting there and I'm like, and Julie Spencer's an outlier too. I feel like I was going to, like, into my head, I'm like, just, it just fits in. I didn't, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think that was the first book of his that we read. And then I got the whole family to read everything. And it's like, it was a huge change in my life. Um, Carol Dweck, Mindset. Oh, yeah. Another like life-changing that. thing. Um, yeah. um, recently, um, Iron, Robert, Iron Robertson, um, a neuroscientist who wrote a book that his publishers, I'm convinced, chose the title for called Stress Test. Um, and his research with, um, well, just, you, you have to read it, um, Stress Test. And it's about research that's just literally less than three or four years old talking about how the brain works in ways that um, that people just don't realize yet. I mean, apart from the fact that we grow new neural cells and well, anyway, it's absolutely mind blowing stress test. Um, Mark Goulston, fascinating guy, another psychologist, um, just listen. He talks a lot about amygdala hijack and talks a lot about things to, to, to improve communication, but also about how to handle um, how to handle high sensitivity issues uh, within yourself and with other people. Um, Harari, you know, Sapiens, um, that's a good starting place, you know, the history of humanity and the way that our evolution, you know, affects um, societies today. Lincoln Diaries, Abraham Lincoln, talking about, you know, coming up from nothing and, um, you know, another autodidactic, you know, Awesome guy. Um, and uh, I never pronounce the name, so I'm embarrassed to say it, but uh, a book called Americana or anything. Oh, I know it too much. Yeah, those are, those are some starting places. Um, anything about uh, high sensitivity, the inner game of tennis, the original inner game, yeah. the original inner game. Mm -hmm. um, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Mm. Um, the Gospel of John, really. I mean, that's like a big one. My daughter uh, wrote stories, family stories, when she went off uh, to college. And she gave it to the family as a present before she left. She had it printed and bound and everything. And it was her stories, just of family things. And oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah. And my mom's book about my dad and my mom's book about uh, my grandmother and my, uh, that part of my family. Um, my uncle's book about, well, anyway. <laughs> I love books. Yeah. One of the guys who interviewed us for a newspaper here in Germany, he came into the living room and he said, yeah, this is, this is a library here, folks. <laughs> it was funny. And he said, but I've never seen a, such a big collection of children's books. This when the kids were little, we just, I mean, you know, there are just so many cool books to read and you can learn so much from kids' books. I mean, Winnie the Pooh, come on. Winnie the Pooh. It's yeah. like, you know, my philosophy of life comes from A.A. Milner. <laughs> so yeah, Winnie the Pooh's a big one. Awesome. Well, you mentioned tennis. 
So now I, I very important question, which is um, Federer or Nadal? Wow. I, I like Federer for the same reason I loved um, Steffi Graf. Mm. There's an ability, and I mean, Boris as well, the ability to shut off the emotional judgment of yeah. any mistake that you may have just made. And the ability to, to be forward thinking and to get to a higher level when you're under stress. For me, I mean, I mean, but who doesn't love Nadal? Come on. The guy is like, you know, he leaves it all out there on the court. He does. Yeah. So, I mean, part of me is like, you know, there was this joke because when I was five, I wanted to marry Spock. So I, I, uh, I watched Star Trek, the original Star Trek, when it first came out, you mm -hmm. know, when I was five. Yeah. Okay, by then I was seven. Okay, I was seven. <laughs> but, but I went I went to first, I went, so I was in second grade, and I went to second grade, and I said, I'm going to marry Spock. And so I, I invited my friends to the wedding, and I was going to marry Spock. And so the joke is, I married a German. I mean, and who is closest to the character of Spock except Germans? Maybe the Swiss. Or the Austrians, but it's very funny. So that's kind of the joke in the family because my husband, his joke is, ah, who needs emotions? You know, you just have to do your work. And I mean, by now it's a joke, and he's an extremely emotional, sensitive guy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, compared to me, it's. <laughs> <laughs> so the joke is, I did marry Spock. I got you. You did it. So, you did it. So, so, so there's just like this, this, this dichotomy within myself, you know? I gravitate toward the logical and the reasonable. I mean, I wanted to be a scientist. And I mean, there are buku scientists in my family, physicists, biologists, chemists, whatever, engineers. So, but there's this part of me that's like the actual me. And that's the me that I have to fight to keep the emotions, you know, in their place so that, you know, you don't cry at every, you know, animal movie and, you know, you can get through, you know, a sad story and still maintain your composure in public, you know, these kinds of things. But so, yeah, it's always, uh, for me, it's always trying to strike the balance between um, reason and passion. So yeah, and it all better. It's like the classic question you just throw at me then. Yeah. <laughs> well, the correct, the, I always say the correct answer is Federer, but um, that's, that's my opinion. But, you know, here's the thing. I, I agree. I'll tell you a story. I, I've said this a number of times on the show, but I feel like you'd be really you're the perfect audience for this, which is that a uh, number of years ago, my wife and I did get to go to Wimbledon. And um, and we got to see one after the other Federer and then Nadal warm up. And and Federer was like. I, I grew my my background is. um was with uh, Court McLaren and UCG and the kind of his common elements approach, which is all about um, all about comfort and playing uh, relaxed and all that stuff. And I was like, that was actually Federer. Federer would, was doing, was pulling off these drop, ridiculous drop shots, like five in a row, backhand drop shots from behind the baseline and just like placing it right over the net. Yeah. And it was just like easy. Like he was barely doing anything. Nadal gets up there and Nadal is, as you can imagine, hitting 
lasers just and you can like hear the wind like you know and it just like and it was just what a stark difference from from these two champions of them going about this it was it was it was amazing it's interesting you say that Pete because um in my playing when I was deciding as a teenager what style Mm -hmm. I would have as a soloist I was I was looking at Lee who really enjoys letting people know that something is difficult, mm. which is cool. Yeah. And I was looking at Gordon who really enjoys making people think that what he's doing is easy, even though it's really, really hard. Yeah. And so when I was 15, I decided I wanted to go for making things look easy because I felt more comfortable watching someone who I felt was more relaxed when they played. Yeah. And that, that was part of one of the main ingredients to me developing the Spencer technique, the horizontal technique, all the stuff that I got into was the idea of relaxing the muscles as much as possible because, and this is how I formulated it at the, at the 1986 Pasic in Washington, DC. And when John Wire of Nexus came up and introduced himself to me, I said the sentence, a relaxed muscle is easier to control than a tight muscle. And John Wire came up and said that it was like a tabula rasa moment for him, that that's something that he knew intuitively and that that's what he did. You know, John was this really tall, lanky guy. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, he looked like wind when he would walk. You know, he just effortless. Mm -hmm. His gait was effortless. You could tell how he would play by the way that he walked, you know. And, And he said... Yeah, that's absolutely it. And that was an affirmation for me when I was, how old was I? I was 24. And when John Wire said that to me, I realized, yes, I'm going to keep going for this because that is exactly, that's exactly what I think it is. And that effortlessness, part of being able to have that kind of effortlessness is to be able to control your nerves, to be able to control your judgment, to turn off the words and to be able to let the, let the unconscious uh, really do what you've trained it to do, which is to take over instead of being in control um, consciously with with a verbal track going on all the time. And that's what a lot of guys, a lot of people have described as being able to watch yourself from above when you're playing, Mm. Uh, certainly in in improvisations. And there's a funny story of a lady that transcribed one of John Coltrane's uh, solos. And I was um, fortunate one of the guys I was in school with at CalArts uh, was John Coltrane's son, Robbie, and we were in a band together. And uh, this lady in LA transcribed one of his dad's solos and went to him and showed it to him. And he said, and she said, Mr. she was one of the studio, the great studio pianists of the time. She said, Mr. Coltrane, I'd like you to take a look at this. And he looked at it and he said, why did you write this? Nobody can play this. He said, this is unplayable on a saxophone. And she said, Mr. Coltrane, this is your solo from, you know, some club he had played a few months before. And he didn't believe her. Because what he was able to achieve in his moment, you know, in his transcendence of that degree of relaxation um, was more than what he was even aware of that he was doing and something that he intellectually thought would not be possible. And that's what relaxation gives us. Relaxation gives us the ability to transcend what we imagine to be possible. Yeah. See, again, it's it's better. That's what I'm saying. So <laughs> <laughs> that's but that's the you know part of it is that I I, I feel like 
because you, you see this with certain players and I'm thinking music, sport, like all the stuff where they've, the work has been done to such a degree and the reps have been done to such a degree that when they, when they're in that space and they're pulling off and it's like, it's always, what's always annoying is when you, when the people, they get the interview, like, what were you thinking? And it's just like, they weren't like, there's no thinking that the thinking's done. Like <laughs> the job, right. like with Coltrane, the, right. the, the art has happened. <laughs> yep. And um, another friend of mine that, that Gernot and I played with, who we also met through Johnny Lee Lane at the U.S. camp, his name was Joe Bonadio. Uh-huh. And a couple of years ago, Joe was uh, touring with Sting. And Joe used to say, he would say, and, and we met one night at camp. We just met each other and we just started playing. I was, I think I was playing marimba and he was playing drum set. And, and when we finished playing, I was in tears. There was so much stuff that was happening. And we've been friends ever since. But one of the things that Joe used to say, and he was a huge Keith Jarrett fan. And so when he found out that Gernot had written articles, my husband had written articles from interviews that he had done at Keith Jarrett's house with him, Joe was just like, okay, let's play together. And so that's when the three of us started playing together. And Joe would always say, you have to absolutely forget everything. You have to get behind your instrument as if you've never played it before when you're on the gig. And I used to think, but Joe, what's the point of that? I'm I'm learning all this stuff so that I can do it. And he would be like, yeah, but you want to do it. And the only way that you really can do it and go beyond what you've learned is if you forget that you already learned it. You forget that you know how to do it. Because in the moment where you can really do it, it's not the moment when you're thinking about doing it. It's the moment when there is no thinking, none whatsoever. And I mean... I know a lot of people say that now, but at the time, he was the first person that I'd ever met who actually said that and said that he did it. And because I knew that he made me cry every time we played together, and we only we exclusively only did total concerts of improvisation, like nothing but improvisation, because I knew that he put his money where his mouth was. Um, it made me really think, okay, how can I get to that next level? Because... I want to be like that. I want to be somebody who every time I play with somebody, I make them cry because I'm so deep in the listening that I don't care about anybody thinking about what I'm doing. I care about making the music beautiful for this other person that I'm playing with and the people who are listening, which means you're not thinking about yourself playing music because it's not about you thinking about you playing music. It's about you not even being you anymore. You're being so much you that you're not even the you that you know anymore. It's kind of like how you hear your own voice and you think, that's not me. That's not how my voice sounds. And then you think, you kind of freak out and you get insecure about how your voice sounds. But it's about the you that you are without knowing that you are because that's not the you that actually you hear the voice of that person. That's the you that you are that makes you do the things that you have to do and love the things that you love in such a way that you transcend who you even realize you are in the moment that you're doing it. And that's what love is. That's that's what love is. It's being more than who we are, but who we are, but more than we knew we are. And I just think the more I think about this, the more I talk about it, the more powerful it is. And I need to think about it and talk about it more for this to really have the resonance in me in an everyday way. Because it's one thing to be able to talk about it, and it's another thing to be able to do it. 
And so many times I get stopped by being afraid of not being good enough or being afraid at the last minute, you know, like before the finish line. What if I'm not as good once I finish? And sometimes I think the biggest fear of all is just being afraid of finding out what we can do. Because the responsibility when you know what you can do is so enormous to actually be that person that you can be. It's a, it's a level of commitment. And I think mostly being committed to being who you are and being the best you can be and being all of who you are, no matter what it is, is one of the scariest things ever. At least that's how I experience it. So sometimes I get most scared right before I finish something because if you never finish something, you can always think you're better than you actually are. And then you get afraid because you think, what if I'm not as good as I want to be? And the point is, you're not going to be as good as you want to be. And that's why you have to keep working at it. And that's what makes it so cool because it's never done. Because... If you love what you're doing, it doesn't have to be done to be able to have enjoyed it because you enjoy doing it. But you have to be comfortable. Uh, some writers in the 60s in the postmodernist movement talked about being comfortable with being uncomfortable and that that's really what postmodernism is all about. Yeah. It's being able to understand that we don't know and that it's okay. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm... I'm learning to laugh at myself more and to be comfortable with not knowing and to push myself over the finish line of things, realizing that that fear is perfectly normal and that you don't have to be controlled by fear, if that makes sense. No, it does. All right. Jules, last question. What one piece of art, any media whether, you know, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, whatever. One, if you can, one piece of art that has impacted you the most recently. Wow, that's another good question. You've got lots of good questions, Pete. Oh, thanks. Well, again, it's kind of like that favorite question. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like you're asking the same question, but, you know, you couched it with a slightly different description i do not know how to answer it but what i can say is this i can say that um the clouds today were really beautiful over the mountain and the roses from my garden that i put in the vase in the kitchen above the sink at about four o'clock the light was coming through and they just looked like they glowed i mean they looked like they were glowing and my daughter's hug after my concert three days ago, because she saw that I had tears in my eyes during the concert and she came up to me in intermission and just gave me a big hug. That's art. And my son's smile when I told him that I really liked his new piece. And my cat was lying on a chair in just a particular kind of way today. And that's art because she was really happy and relaxed. Yeah. And I saw a new artist, and I can't remember her name, and I feel stupid, but it's this amazing um, artist who draws polka dots and dots and stuff. She's in Japan, and um, she really affected me strongly, and I saw her book again in the library the other day, and the bookstore the other day, because she was so open and free and amazing, and I draw a lot of dots and circles. 
That's Art Art, a song that I just wrote today with my son, with my daughter improvising. That really, really moved me. And this will sound stupid, but one of the paintings that I did for this new show, I keep thinking about it because I didn't know that I could paint something like that. And so I keep looking at it in my mind because I keep wondering where did that come from? And it was the first time that I've ever done anything in that particular way with that variation. And it's the piece when people come and look at the show, everybody is talking about this piece. And a lot of people say, oh, I wish I could buy it, but it's too big or, or it wouldn't fit in this place or whatever. But it's the piece that more people have talked about than anything else. And it's the piece that I keep coming back to in my mind because um, I felt like it was a picture of something within me that I didn't know was there until it came out on the canvas. And when I finished it, I thought it was wrong. I thought I had made a mistake. And my husband said, no. And my son said, no. And my daughter said, no. They said, it's perfect. But it was so different than anything I had done. I felt like I had missed something, that it, it, it wasn't how it was supposed to be. And it was exactly what it was supposed to be. And I was so surprised to get all the response that I've gotten from it. I keep looking at it in my mind and thinking, there's some part of me that knew this was what it was supposed to be before I knew that it's what it was supposed to be. And that's why I keep coming back to it. It keeps inspiring me because it's inspiring me to say no to myself when I think that something is wrong and to say, wait a minute, maybe this is exactly what it's supposed to be. And it's affecting everything. This, this canvas is affecting how I'm thinking about everything I'm doing right now. So I guess that's being inspired by something that's art that came from me. So I don't want it to sound like it's, you know, egotistical or something. It's just, it was a piece that surprised me so much. I'm thinking about it a lot because I want to be that brave all the time. I want to be that brave to say, yeah, I'm going for this, even though I think that's not right. And I'm going to see what it looks like when it's done. And maybe I'm going to have another one of those canvases that just, it moves me in a way that I didn't think I didn't think I could be moved. Okay, so that's stuff that's inspiring me now, that's art in nature and emotion and visual and sound. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I love talking to you, Pete. Thanks. Have fun so editing. Oh. Uh -huh. <laughs>
but it's one I hadn't gotten to watch until now, and it comes highly recommended to you all. The title, Lean on Pete, is the name of a racehorse that places prominently in the film. The horse becomes the focus of the main character, Charlie, played by Charlie Plummer, a teenager in a poor family who starts working in the stable with Lean on Pete, who is owned by Dell, and that is Steve Buscemi's character. Chloe Sevigny plays a local jockey who knows Dell and gets to know Charlie. Now, this isn't much of a plot line, I can tell you, but I can say that this is definitely not an uplifting boy and his horse story. Suffice it to say, Charlie's already challenging life gets in turn even more so, as his already small family tragically becomes smaller, and he's simply looking for somewhere to belong and someone to belong to. Overall, this is a devastating film that is incredibly well-acted, well-directed, and comes by its frequently shocking and honestly breathtaking moments completely rooted in truth. The lead performance by Charlie Plummer, an actor with very few overall acting credits even to this day, is outstanding. The film is well-paced and full of lots of supporting roles that are also fully formed, and the characters make the most of their time on the screen. If you find yourself up for a challenging, well-paced film with great acting, then this is your ticket. Check out Lean on Pete, again, no relation, available on many streaming services. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.